Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here we go with this thing. Ready? Three to one. Okay, this time, uh, unlike most uh, for loyal listeners, I had no relationship with this guest except we DM'd each other a couple times. I think I was asking for advice. Also admire what she does. So uh, it's great to have Soledad O'Brien, whose credits alone could fill the air. NBC, MSNBC, CNN, HBO, podcasting, Matter of Fact show. I think you subbed on the news hour on PBS. Is that a fact? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? That's just an indication that I've just been around a long time. Don't you think at some point you're just like, yeah, just been around? <laughs> no, the, the joke is uh, she can't hold a job, but that, that's, <laughs> that's not true. She just had a varied uh, experience list. And we have one commonality. We both were guests on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell on NPR. Right. I was nervous for that. Yeah, that's like, hard. Don't... It's hard to prep for that. It's hard to prep for that show. 100%. Right? Like, read the papers. You're like, okay. It's yeah, it's basically a review of current events. Yeah. And they don't perfectly set you up to get the right answer. Nope. And you're supposed to be the smart person they brought you in for a reason. Yeah. I think I did okay. I th- generally I did okay. Like I was got out, you know, unscathed. I did it while I was taking garbage to a garbage dump. I used to take my own garbage when I lived I in my own garbage. I like it. Same. My I grew up with that. My father would take us down. We lived, Local you know. Dump rural Seattle and you'd go to the dump once a week. Then later I was a garbage man in college, uh, but we didn't come to talk about my garbage. Also, I'm really appreciative of how you conduct yourself on Twitter in particular as sort of a watchdog (laughs) of what in the hell is going on with our institutional media, I guess. Craziness. Craziness. Like like the New York Times headlines. They'll write a good story. They have good reporters. They're doing good work. But institutionally, it seems like they want to, oh, we're going to do both sides now in the headlines so it doesn't seem like we attacked Trump or something. Yeah, it's messy. And, you know, I never was a print reporter, so I don't exactly know how that relationship between the reporter and the headline writer goes. Um, I can only tell you that as a, if someone kept getting my, you know, headlines on, in cable, you know, they put the headline under the, yeah. the, the anchor's face or the Chiron, we call it, like, after some point, I'd be like, okay, this person is clearly messing up what this story is about. They got to go. Um, but I think it works differently, but yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's just a piece of a bigger problem. I think in that media is really challenged in an environment that's a challenging environment. And I, I think they're being run over. I agree. Look at meet the press, no follow-up question. Like there's just so well, many it's, examples. It's, it's amusing that it's a joke, right? It's a punchline. Like yeah. if you're at the point where it's a punchline, you know, and know. not even by a, you know, like Trevor Noah is a comedian. 
you know, it's not a punchline by other political pundits. It's a punchline by a, a comedian. So yeah, it's, it's, that's where we are. Well, for all those examples, and there's a thousand more, the, the playing, the access journalism, playing both sides when you know the person you had on has lied repeatedly. Let's bring them back on. Here comes Ted Cruz again. You know, it just goes on and on and on. We'll get back into that. I'd rather talk about something that's meaningful for you right now, because I'm so interested in seeing part of it. I, I apologize. I didn't see all of it. But it, what I did see, I was completely captivated by. It's our new doc. Yeah. You're the executive producer, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, Peacock streaming. It'll be streaming by the time this runs. We're taping ahead of time. Uh, so congratulations, A, just Thank on the you. accomplishment. Thank you. Thank you. Was, was it a hard sell to get it placed? Uh, yes and no. Yes, in that I think any historical doc is tough, right? It's that starring someone other than Kim Kardashian is tough, right? Or uh, any kind of like pop culture boldface name. I think that's pretty easy. On the other hand, Rosa Parks is a very famous figure. So it's not, you know, you've never heard of her, but she was important. I think everybody's heard of Rosa Parks. And I think the twist in this particular doc is that what you think you know is completely wrong. You know, if you have this idea that Rosa Parks one day, tired from her job as a seamstress, decided just not to give up her seat on the bus, that's just a completely wrong look at, at Rosa Parks's uh, history, her own life, her activism. And I think it's also always makes me wonder, like, so why? Why was it framed that way? Right. I mean, because uh, for, uh, that take was how I, I thought of it. If you'd asked me and my kids, you know, what that's what they would have thought, that she one day was just too tired. Rosa Parks said later, I wasn't any more tired at, after work than I ever was. I was tired of being treated poorly. And I think that that's the key that people miss. Like she was just sick of white supremacism and, and what was just injustice all around her. And her whole life, she fought against it. Um, so, you know, we really wanted to tell a doc in her own words, tell her story and explain to people who think that they know, like, yeah, I know Rosa Parks, um, you know, that they don't really know Rosa Parks. And why is it so much more palatable to have someone who kind of accidentally right, one right. day just kind of accidentally pulled off this massive civil rights protest that would go on and spur a massive boycott that would eventually, yeah. you know, change integration in the city of Montgomery, Alabama, right? It's it's so pleasant that she's a grandmotherly type figure that just accidentally happened right. one long day. They versus, tried to, I think they tried to minimize, I think it was purposeful. I yeah. think that was to minimize what her real role was, where she was really coming from. Let's make it a one-off incident. Oh, and then then we can tell the nice storybook thing that can be in all the textbooks around the country and not really get into the problem. Yeah, and I think I, um, I think some people uh, leverage it that way. And I think people who wanted to honor her also were comfortable with that, right? People who are true rebels, I think, are a little bit of a harder sell. And it's an uncomfortable story. Sure. And so her story was very easily and willingly embraced. But, you know, civil rights work doesn't really work like that, right? It's not one day I accidentally kicked off this massive protest that would go all the way to the courts. It doesn't work like that. And I think the story of how civil rights really does work in a lot of ways is, one, it's just more accurate. And I think it's important to be accurate in history. Well, I think it reminds me a little bit of Jackie Robinson, because again, in that case, it got minimized. Oh, he was, he was the guy that finally let the black guy play and he took the abuse because he had such strength and resolve and he didn't let the insults bother him. That's kind of the story that gets told when in fact he was very active additionally beyond his baseball. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's it's interesting. One of the things that we learned about Rosa Parks was that she, um, one of her jobs working as a secretary for the NAACP was whenever anybody had a, a complaint, a criminal complaint, that she would go and take notes. And she would she went to the home of a woman named Reese Taylor, who was um, who was raped by um, a handful of white men. And, you know, and I, I always think about like how she went out into the countryside, sheriff's car driving back and forth, you know, kind of like we know you're in there sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The guys told Reese that they would kill her if she ever told anybody she went to complain and no one ever took on her case. And I always thought like, imagine the courage of one going to take notes and, and take, take note of this woman's story when nobody cares, right? You're never, ever, ever going to get justice. It will not happen. And the woman in her bravery being like, well, let me tell you for the record what happened, knowing you're never, ever, ever going to get justice. It will not happen. And like, and then here they are still like, the record matters, the, the facts of it actually matter. Maybe this will never go anywhere, but it matters to have a record of what she said and what happened to her. And I always thought of that. I mean, a lot of that to me is kind of why you report if you're a reporter, right? Like it's about the truth matters and maybe no one ever gets it, but the truth does matter. Well, we could go detour of reporters who know things and don't report them in the contemporaneous fashion, right? And then, oh, I got a book in 18 months. That'll be a great, like, wait a minute. That thing that you didn't report was kind of important, but different subject. I just had to interject that. So there's an early scene where there's a reference. She says it. She talks about being scared of the KKK. And, and you show the file film of, you know, burning crosses and all that. A lot of times, people my age, I think I'm older than you, but we read about it and it seemed like, oh, that was way back then. That that's not going on now when in fact it's now going on again or, or a derivative. It, it's just the, the history, what I'm getting at the, the history of her is the history of everything. And it's also history of current events. And it wasn't all that long ago. I mean, if you think about it, you know, sometimes when I talk to college students, we'll talk about uh, how the Supreme court didn't overturn the, the ban on interracial marriage, right? So mixed race couples could not get married legally in many States in this country. You know, my, my, my little brother, like that was, I was that age. If I'd been born in a Southern state where my parents first met, you know, then my parents' marriage was illegal, you know, and I'm not 900 years old. Like this idea that these things are not only not so long ago, but they have, they, they resonate to this day. And certainly we've seen, I mean, I think conversations and conflicts around race are, are something we deal with day in and day out now in this country. Um, we really see, uh, it's, it's why I admired what, what, what Rosa Parks was able to do because in her time, the idea of getting justice was just an impossibility. And she really fought against that and still did what she did, even knowing kind of how, unlikely it was and anything would ever be brought to justice. I, I just find that really remarkable. Well, and the daily threat, literally not, 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 it's, it's not some, what am I trying to say? It's not some theoretical thing. It was literal that because you did this or did that, or if you looked at a white girl, you know, there all these different examples of, of daily suffering, I guess you the best way to put it. Well, you know, she and her husband, once the um, bus boycott was resolved, she never worked again. She could never get work again. She lost they had her to job. Move, right? 
Yeah, they moved to Detroit and she spent more than half of her life in Detroit. And again, I think sometimes people feel like, so then she sat on the bus because she was tired and then the whole thing was resolved and everybody went back to what they were doing. Right. In case, that case, in fact, she she didn't. You know, she was never able to to work again in her own town and and had to move, went on to stay with family in Detroit, moved to Detroit for the basically the second half of her life. But she was always very active and she was an activist and she was an absolute rebel. I mean, she she was a fan of the Black Panthers as much mm -hmm. as she was a fan of Dr. King and a fan of Malcolm X. Like this was a complex woman sure. who I think um, very much resisted the efforts to uh, be painted as, you know, this little saintly character. Yeah. You brought it up in the last question section, and I don't mean to gloss over it because it is related to the real life example for you that your parents, I believe, did they get married in Washington, D.C.? Am I correct? They ended up getting married in Washington, D.C. Yeah. They were living in Baltimore, Maryland. And Baltimore was one of the, the 16 states in the country where interracial marriage was illegal. So it's actually funny. My parents passed away a couple of years ago now, and we just, you know, kind of got through all of their stuff, basically. And my dad's, my dad was white. My mom was black. And my dad's, um, on the on the birth certificate of my two older sisters who were born in Baltimore, his race is listed as Negro. My dad was like white, very white. <laughs> he was not ever going to be mistaken for someone who was black. Um, but I thought that was very interesting that he put and named himself as Negro on the paperwork for uh, my two older sisters because they lived in Baltimore and their marriage was illegal. Wow. I, I think my daughters who are early 20s, they, I mean, they know they're, they're pretty, uh, you know, schooled up on these things. However, it's more that they would think it's preposterous. Like, wait a minute, how can that even be a thing? Yeah. That's so dumb in your dad, my dad, me, my lifetime, their dad. This was happening. I mean, right. it's, I, it really, it, it hits me like a punch in the face all the time that in my life, all these things were still going on. And then I'm 63. All these years later, they're kind of still going on just in different forms. They're called different things. Yeah. What's interesting, though, is that we, you realize, and I guess it's back to why I don't like the accidental civil rights <laughs> activist thing, right? Because how much work it is, you know, because I do think people sort of take it for granted. I, I have, you know, friends who are you know young teenagers and who are kind of just like, they just think gay people could always get married. Like the yeah. idea that there are people who literally wouldn't let you get married. Right. It's just like, wait, so people like, what would they do if you went, if you went to, to the church, what would happen if you, so if you went to the, you know, like, or the bakery, right? We, you know, we haven't even gotten into that stage yet. You know, so it's just a, so I, I, I do think because we take all of those things for granted, sometimes we, we forget the stories of people who actually work very hard to fight very hard for those things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so it's, it is a, it's, it's a real warning because again, I would say my kids feel the same way. Like my, my parents had six kids before the Supreme court overturned the ban on interracial marriage, <laughs> you know, I mean, just like, and, and my, my, my children, like your daughters, they just can't believe it. Like what? How? So like, what would happen if you tried to get married? Right. Well, you know, <laughs> you're like, ah, yeah, they're looking at it logically, practically and morally. Um, that gives me hope that that whole generation sees the ridiculousness of some of the things that have and still take place. That gives me hope they want it to be different and they want it to be how they see it and more, you know, a pure eyes look. 
Yeah, I think that's true. But also it worries me that we take it for granted and we don't see it as something to fight for. Sure. Right? You think it's always there. It's a little bit like I was in Houston visiting my nephew this weekend and um, I was in an Uber and the woman said to me, you know, we we're talking about the hurricane and she's like, well, you know, when your time is up, your time is up. And I'm like, yeah, well, sometimes, you know, like sometimes you can help push your time back by you yeah. know, things that, you know, totally. like. It, just this idea of like, oh, well, it is what it is. And I think you have to be very careful to push back against. Well, no, sometimes it's not is what it is. Sometimes we make huge problems. We create them and we can uncreate them or fix them. Your parents are both educators, right? Mm-hmm. My dad was a professor. He was a scientist and my mom was a Spanish and French teacher. So I assume in a family like that, you at a young age were consuming the news and having, you know, some kind of framework, you know, your political thought or whatever. You, you know, what's interesting. I think because we were a mixed race family in a very white community, I think my parents worked very hard to protect us from those kinds of conversations because certainly when I was born and through the seventies and eighties, when busing was happening in Boston and, um, you know, in Queens, you had people, you know, literally fighting over black people moving into the neighborhood. My parents couldn't even get a house in our neighborhood until my dad just went by himself to buy it. You know, I think that they were very aggressive about actually keeping stuff from us, you know, kind of mm. like there's going to be time for that. Right now, you just go have your childhood. Your kid. But yeah. when did you learn? What age were you when you found like, Oh, this is really weird. My parents weren't even supposed to be allowed to be married in this country when they found a way to like, when did you know that? And how did it affect you? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I knew it early on because of course in probably eighth grade, you're studying all American history and civil rights, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't really know my parents' personal story. Like I just knew that as a, a fact, right. And there they are, you know, they're your parents. So they're married. So whatever they're married, here they are. Here, here's where you live. Even though history tells me we weren't allowed to live here, you know, but here we are. But it wasn't until I started writing my memoir in 2010 that I really understood like the personal stories. I just, I had never dug that deep. It sounds terrible. Like, you know, I didn't know the years they were in Baltimore. I mean, I kind of knew one sister yeah. was born, you know, but the details, it was not that interesting to me until I started writing my memoir. And then I was just like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> you know, I wish I had seen my dad's, my, my sister's birth certificates because I would have completely asked them like so Negro got on the birth certificate how was that just someone guessed and they put it down was it was it that you felt like it would be safer was it intentional you and mom did that did you never go to the hospital so no one ever questioned like there's so many questions out of that you wrote something on Twitter Mm. I was going to use as the introduction to you and I (laughs) just blew past that I think it's kind of beautiful it's your pin tweet Oh, yeah. talking about your parents. She says, when my mom died, I found this letter to the editor among her possessions. She called out John Klein, the town supervisor in Smithstown, Long Island, for his racist housing policies. I think it's from the 1970s. It inspires me to name names and call out bullshit. She wrote BS. Don't live afraid. I like everything about that. It honors your mom for stars. I'm sure uh-huh. it. And my know. mom was very much like that. Like she really was a she was really a name caller sometimes to, I think to her own, you know, a cost to her personally, but she mm-hmm. really felt, um, you know, it was very like you read that note 
from that's it wasn't even I think it was an ad because we look at it and it looks more like she took out an ad because yeah. she couldn't get in an op-ed and um, you know basically saying like you're gonna pay this there's a cost to this um, you know that's a pretty ballsy thing to do my mom was very ballsy uh, in so many ways and mad I think what happens is people get very frustrated and angry about you know seeing injustice day in and day out and nobody wanting to actually fix it or tackle it or be honest about that it even exists. And I think that, I think they were, again, very careful to kind of protect us from becoming cynical at an early age. I think they really felt like you guys will, you know, you'll see a lot of your, on your own. I knew my mom always was fighting for housing, but, and, and access to housing, especially in Long Island. When I wrote my memoir, I told the story of, you know, the town that I lived in, which I did not know in the time when that I was in middle school and high school, systematically kept out people of color from Section 8 housing. They just didn't want poor people who are of color. Um, it just happens in actually a lot of communities. I just, I had no idea that that was going on, you know, when I was mm -hmm. in middle school and in high school, I had no idea. So, you know, I think that they were pretty aggressive about both doing the work and not necessarily sucking us into it. Were you on uh, Mr. Gates' show on looking into your oats on PBS? Yes. You know, it's so funny because they really wanted to tell the story of my dad's side of the family. You know, it's a great honor for Australians to have someone in the family who's a criminal um, <laughs> and has, you know, come to Australia kind of in chains so that they, it's, it's very, it's like, it's like being on the Mayflower, like you know, <laughs> great, great, great. So-and-so um, my dad's uh, yeah. So they told the story of my dad's side of the family. My well, I had a great, great, great aunt um, who was, she had some challenges there were a lot of criminals ran through my dad's family, none that actually like founded Australia. So less, less uh, honorable, I guess, in that way. But it was fascinating. EJ does a great job. That show with Finding Your Roots is fantastic. And it's so interesting. And, um, and I, I really, just the data that exists, you know, he would pull up like, this is the certificate that shows your great, great, great grandmother you know, who was a slave in Benin, Africa. It was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, their, their research is deeper than me looking at your pen tweet for sure. <laughs> but I already knew a little bit about you. Do your kids ever tell you, like, Mom, you went too hard today on Twitter. Come on, back it off. Or are they proud of you? Or No, I, 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 I post too much. They're like, oh, my God, <laughs> I had to unfollow you, Mom. Oh, my God, just too much. You just fill up my feed all the time. Uh, so, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't even think they, they care that much. Every so often, a friend of theirs will capture something and send it to them. And then they'll send it to me like, mom, so-and-so retweeted you, or did you see? <laughs> no. but, yeah, but I think, I, I, think I, I tweet too much and Instagram too much for them to, to care. Yeah, you're too old for that. That's supposed to be for the kids. Is that what they're trying to say? I think they're trying to say it's just <laughs> too much. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm just trying to promote my doc, so. Well, I think you do more than that. I look at you, and this is with admiration, bit of a watchdog of the people that you used to work with. He said, cause it kills me. And, and on personal level, I have a lot of good friends who I know they think like I do about Trump and Trumpism and so forth, but they're, they don't want to put their name on it. They want to. Yeah. I was having this conversation with someone the other day, which is about, what do they say? You know, if it, I'm going to mess it up, but it's kind of like if a man's uh, income depends on him <laughs> not mm -hmm. seeing a thing, then he will not see that thing. Um, you know, and I, I think that that's someone was asking me about um, 
contributors and he would say, but, you know, I would hear them talking and they were like, oh, I hate Trump. I hate, you know, and then the next thing you know, they're literally defending him on air. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, you are just, you're naive, you know, it's, you're, it's, it's just a way to make money. And I, I understand that. Right. It's like, this is what, uh, this is how you keep your job. I get it. I really get it. Well, there's that. And then there's also in the new book, I'm just reading it right now, Sarah Kenzur, it's called They Knew. And she talks about the difference between conspiracies and conspiracy theories. They sound the same, but they're different. One's fucking crazy. And the other one's a conspiracy. And it could be argued if you look at the evidence of what's going on. How come Garland hasn't done anything? How come this guy keeps getting let off for this? How come, right? There's there's like a million questions about why is DeJoy still the postmaster general? Like the whole, they're in a club that we're not in is what it feels like. And they seem to protect each other. They, <laughs> there's a lot of they, you know where I'm going with this? Like, oh, yeah, like listen, the whole system's rotten is what it feels like. I think that's in some ways easy to say. I, I think there's also processes that we're not privy to, right? Like I could not tell you how the legal process works to bring a case. You know, in, in it's it's so it's why you really want um, journalists to explain things to you. I have no idea how you remove somebody like the postmaster general, right? Like I have no idea. I, I don't know. Someone might say, "Oh no, no, you literally that person has to die in office, and then they're gone." That's it. I don't know. And so I, be- I, think- I believe they have a board, and we have enough votes to get rid of them, and they haven't hit their lever on it. I could be wrong. So, or or you might say, but you only have a certain amount of political goodwill. True. So is this the one you want to pull the lever on? Think carefully. Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, Trump changed, uh, well, most of them were felons, so he had to get rid of them, but they changed different. They had temporary, they had right without getting congressional approval, right? I think it's one of the things that I'm frustrated with about journalists, because I do think most people don't know. And actually helping people understand how processes work is a real value. Often I think journalists cover politics like this team versus this team. Right, a horse race. I said this. And I'm much more interested in, so the reason your insulin costs so much is this. The reason housing is so high is this. The reason, like, and there are people to blame, but you need to understand the mechanism, right? So, so somebody could say, you know, answer those questions. So what is the process for doing this? How unusual is this? Is this typical? Why of all the people who are being fined, um, certainly today in the news, right? Kim Kardashian paying a million to something, something for uh, doing something as an ad that she didn't state was an ad. I am confident there are a lot of people more than Kim Kardashian who have done similar things. You know, so I'm just curious why her as a, a, a target, why not her? Are there others? Um, right. You know, I, I think that the show that I, I, the Sunday political, it's really more of a policy show that we do. We do a lot of explaining, you know, what is, what is the problem with Puerto Rico's grid mm-hmm. <laughs> and how do people get around it? Or Texas. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. And, and we did an entire show on that. It was one of our highest rated shows because I think people are actually like, yes, I've heard about Puerto Rico's grid. Can you explain to me exactly like, why does it not work? Is it just too many people? Is it just old? Is it just, what is, is it just hit by hurricanes and is just constantly damaged? Like what's the deal? And I, I think people are so much smarter than sometimes cable news gives them credit for being like that. These are people want to learn. We did a whole show once on, um, on, on the border. And, and that was our second highest rated show, mm. right? And the people on the border think people in DC, where we do a lot of our border conversations, right? Are really politicians. 
talking about the border, but they're not really talking about the border, right? They're talking about this thing that they can leverage called the border, <laughs> but right. it's not the reality of the border. When you actually go and talk to people on the border, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or independents, they're very realistic about how the border works, the benefits they have from people in Mexico, the, the problems they have. You know, and they think everybody in D.C. is an idiot about it because the border they're talking about is not a real border. So I would say if you want to cover stories about the border, go to the border and talk to people. Yeah. And so, you know, that's I think there are ways that you can work around the way we do news in a daily fashion where you can help people understand the issue rather than just this congressman versus this congressman. They're going to yell at each other for the next four and a half minutes. And then I'm going to say, well, gentlemen, we got to leave it there. Thanks for joining. I'll see you <laughs> next week. Because that's kind of how it goes. I think one problem in American media is there's a cutback in local reporting, right? Staffing issues. There's companies like Sinclair buying up all these local affiliates and handing them scripts to read. Like we're missing sometimes the detail at the very local level for those who want to know. Yeah, it's important. I mean, stories really are that become national are really just local stories that have suddenly made sense to bring them national for whatever reason, right? So if you look at, for example, that horrible school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, you know, that's a local, very local story. And the people who do the best job in understanding what is law enforcement like? Where is that school? Who goes to that school? What's the community like? Um, what are the past problems? Those are all local reporters who really can understand the people and the personalities. You see it certainly in, in coverage of issues like school boards. Um, in you know, and and in uh, local races that in many ways just get ignored because you don't have the the local reporters uh, able to cover it or the bodies to cover it or even the bodies to go to a you know a a, a, count, a town meeting to be able to understand you know how money is being sent and is spent and who's spending it. So yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous loss. I think it's a real problem. Do you think women in general across the country are going to turn out? more than they were going to, given the Roe decision, the overturning. Um, do you think that's a catalyst? I think so. I, I think so. And I only say that because when I'm at dinner um, in a very divided community, so we're probably 50% Democrats and 50% Republicans, the conversations are very much like that, where families are arguing and it's so far been, this is super duper anecdotal, so who knows, to say like 10 times, where daughters are arguing with their moms often <laughs> about you know the Supreme Court decision. I'd never heard that before. I've never in my life heard families discussing a Supreme Court decision over dinner at a restaurant. Like that's mm -hmm. just would be bizarre. And so it's been very interesting um, to see the way in which that has kind of seeped into real um, conversations that people are having at home. And it wouldn't surprise me if that turns people out. I, I think people, women especially, are, are are mad and they're engaged and they get it. And I think there's so, one, people are not necessarily super well-educated on issues often. And number two, a lot of what happens in government seems very convoluted. And this is very, very clear. Here's what happened. This is what happened. And so I do think it's going to drive people. I would not be shocked if it drives lots of people to the polls. You mentioned you were at this family dinner with some Republicans, some Democrats, 50-50. I can't even quite identify what a Republican is anymore. What I used, I had my image of, oh, the Republicans are the, generally speaking, here's what, where they come from. Here's the Democrats over here. They usually battle it out. And most often they kind of found a way to meet in the middle. That's when things sort of worked. Now the Republicans, except for about five with a conscience, are right just devoted to Trump. 
So there is no Republicans. The Trump party, they call themselves Republicans. But the people are like people who identify themselves historically as Republicans. They either, oh, I don't like him much, but I'm still for their policies. So I'm going to stomach, right? Like you you get into all these classes of people almost. Yeah. Listen, I know lots of Republicans who will tell you I don't like Trump, but but, you know, they consider themselves conservative or Republicans or would vote for. I know a lot of people who voted for Trump and and even with all that is known today, would vote for him again because they think that, you know, the policies, they, you know, they, they laugh at the person. Absurd, ridiculous, but, but they, they like the policies. And, you know, I think that that's the way of saying, well, you know, I don't really like the guy. I think for a lot of the politicians, it's a bit of a tougher story to spin because they're constantly having to defend something that the former president has done or said, and it puts them in a very challenging position, but they also want to get elected or reelected. And so they, you know, they, they tend, I think my experience has been, they tend to back away from those things that they believe uh, in order to stay in the good grace of the president. But listen, there are plenty of people there. You know, I live in New York. There are plenty of wall street people who love Trump, but if he were to run again, they would vote for him. I had a great conversation with one of my old bosses. He was in the sales division, ESPN, Disney, all that. And we were, this is before the election. And he's like, I just don't get it because you know what you know about him. You're going to get like a 3% bonus to whatever money you make. And it markedly is not going to change your life. You still are going to have the nice house and eat steaks when you want. And I know I sound elitist here. I'm not trying to sound that way. I'm just saying for the people who, who are going to get those breaks, that 3% or where the hell it was, didn't even change your life. You just have a little more money. And for that, you were willing to sell your soul to it. Yeah, I used to say to people, but what he's saying is so overtly racist. And like, you're a good person. Like you're a nice, I mean, if this were a person who were in the street yelling these things at me, I, I think you'd be the first person to stand up and defend me and be like, oh my God, this is horrible. But like, why, how is that you have this disconnect? He doesn't mean it. It doesn't matter. And they did. They felt like there was something they were going to get out of it. And I think for a lot of people, that 3% is really important to them. Hmm. Um, it reminds me of that old, I think, I think it was a U.S. government film. I don't know which department. You've probably seen it on Twitter. It's like history repeating itself. And it's mm-hmm. the old, they came for them, they came for them, and they finally yeah. came for me, right? It's They're all standing, listening to this con man, you know, do this big speech, right? You know the black yeah. and white film I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think that, you know, again, unfortunately, in those things, no one ever thinks it's them. But people in the South heard that it's called the War of Northern Aggression. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's just like some some history got turned upside down and minimized, and then one by one, some people are kind of waiting on. Here's the real story. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, or, you know, fortunately it's happening now, but, you know, a lot of TV news coverage, I mean, what I've always done, right. Even covering the Haiti earthquake, you start with it's like, so let me explain to you about why Haiti was where it was. Haiti's on the other side of the Dominican Republic. Why does Haiti have some issues that the DR does not, right? That's history 101. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of news coverage is so much better when you explain to people, like, how did we get here? It's so ridiculous the way we like to pretend that things just happened as opposed to, well, actually there was intention. If you read through, I mean, it's really fascinating to look at cities and their um, city council meetings, you know, and, and exits off the highway are argued over, right? Sometimes it's because certain undesirables, they don't want to give them straight access into the downtown. Sometimes it's they literally want to cut off communities. When you, when you cut a neighborhood in half by putting a, you know, a high, yeah. uh, like a elevated road through, you literally make intentional decisions. And, and 
I don't know. I was pretty old before I realized that those things were written down in right. minutes of meetings, you know, as opposed to like, oh my God, we didn't realize that we were chopping that neighborhood in half or, oh my you, God, the black people can't get on to the subway anywhere close to where they live. That's so crazy. Um, a good example would be uh, the guy who, um, who really built up Jones Beach, you know, and making very sure that you wouldn't be able to um, get buses to come out there because he built the overpasses low enough because he didn't want people to be able to come in mass, people, people mm -hmm. of color to be able to, and he was very clear about it. So I'm always amazed when, you know, you think it might be true and then you read like literal words, like, oh, they vary the intention behind it. And so, yeah, I, I, I think understanding history and why people did what they did, often they leave their fingerprints very clearly around you know, what they wanted to do and, and then the, what they were hoping to achieve. Um, it's, it's, it's what I've loved about news, especially since I've always done documentaries and news or even breaking news live coverage where you get to land somewhere and say, you know, so why do people not leave New Orleans when they know a big storm is coming in? They can't. <laughs> right. But for a lot of people, they just yeah. thought like, well, they just don't want to go. You're like, well, if you don't have a car or you don't have the money yeah. or you live next door to your mom and your aunt and your cousin, how how would you leave indefinitely, right? right? Like for a thing that might not actually happen. Well, I mean, they even say that now, like there's certain so-called red states who have more restrictive abortion laws or whatever. You're like, well, why do they keep living in Texas? Why do they keep living in Missouri? Well, Where are you gonna go? not everybody has the means. I, Gretchen and I, my wife, we we're just talking about this with regard to the, the hurricane that hit Florida. We fortunately to our good fortune, got lucky and had a couple jobs where we could, it wouldn't hurt us to write a check or to use our credit card to get a hotel two hours away or a lot of people aren't in that position. Right. Right. Most, and and most that's people a lot are. of money. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Most people don't have $400 in cash saved. So, but even explaining that to people, again, I think there's such a value to explaining this is what it's like here, um, as opposed to just this idea of like arguing over it. So I, I do think that media sometimes really fails the listener who wants to understand something, uh, because what gets filled in in the place is that people are lazy or they're stupid or they're right. they just don't even want to pay attention to an obvious forecast. Well, mm -hmm. you know, those things are only obvious, you know, in retrospect often. Uh, or by the time you figure it out, it's very very hard to leave your community if you don't really have a way out of town. Well, here's one that could have been explained both locally and nationally far better just recently when the gas prices kept going up and up for 40 days, whatever it was. I was like, yeah, Biden, and I'm not his biggest apologist either, but Biden didn't control that. Try Hong Kong gas prices, try Portugal. Like it's a worldwide thing. It's not that Biden's a horrible guy and our gas prices are high, but that's pretty much how it got explained. Yeah. And also live shots, people in front of, you know, look behind me and you're like, yeah, well, that particular one in DC, <laughs> that's kind of a tourist trap. So that's yeah. always going to have very high gas. So maybe let's not use that one. Right. I mean, right. that's not really realistic. And then also no one's standing doing live shots today about gas going down now for what the right. day in a row or something, you know? So yeah, it gets very frustrating because it's clearly not about educating people. And regardless of whose fault it is, it is interesting to understand how does it work exactly? How does it work that those yeah. are reflected immediately? And what would make it change tomorrow? Like, is there right, a thing right. you could do? Um, I, I think people want to know that, but you just get a lot of the drama. If you're pulling up in front of the station that always has the highest gas prices because it's the last place that tourists can go before they get on the highway, then you're not trying to actually serve people and explain what's happening. You're just not. You've said this now several times in the course of whatever 40 odd minutes that you think people do want to learn. They do want they to, do. 
And I'm worried that may be true, you know, certain amount of audience, but I'm also worried people have gotten into their left and right camp, so to speak, and anything they might learn that would run contrary to what they've been told on Fox or Tucker or whatever. Oh, that can't be true. That's, you know, that's the woke media, you know, all that bullshit. But you see even, um, you know, and there are even some reporters who call things woke. New York Times, right, will say things are woke. And you're like, what does that mean? Yeah. What does woke mean? To me, woke means not being an asshole. <laughs> woke means not being a racist or a bigot, right? Like, just don't be a horrible person. It's such a weird thing when the journalists pick up the word woke. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I just look at our ratings. And we and when you cover, when you do explainers, you actually remove a lot of the politics from things. Mm-hmm. So we did a great story on a guy. I mean, just do de facto. So for example, we did a story on a guy who was trying to figure out housing, lived in San Diego, full-time job, um, but couldn't afford uh, an apartment in San Diego on a full-time minimum wage job. So he moved to Mexico. He's not Hispanic, by the way. And he moved to Mexico and got a great apartment inexpensively in Mexico and walks over the bridge into- uh, To go to work. To go to work every day. But I, I couldn't tell you like his pop. We didn't really talk politics and we really were talking about the housing crisis. So in that particular case and in every city, of course, the housing crisis politically is is messy at a bunch of different levels. But to get into that story, I, I don't know. We did a story on insulin. I mean, people need insulin. They're Republicans. People need insulin or Democrats. People who need insulin are independents. Mm-hmm. You can do a look at like so why, how is it possible that insulin costs so much money when actually originally it was what sold for a dollar or something? How is that even possible? And so I think these explainers do go a long way because they're not centered and rooted in politics. They're rooted in like, you got to understand this issue. So I, I think it is a good step. I, yeah, really that's, I mean, that's obviously been one of the biggest hurdles we still face. There used to be an agreement on sort of a basic set of facts and then Liberals could be for this and conservatives be for that. And maybe, maybe not They come to a solution. Now there's disagreement on even where's the starting point. What do we even, so that's why shows that you're, you're talking about if people will take the time. Right. Okay. Cause I love frontline they, and they put out a transcript after here's, here are all the interviews you can judge for yourself. Right. Did we skew it or did we just, here's what happened. You know? Right. And there are ways that I think media, like that's a really good maneuver. If you want people to feel like they got transparency, that's a really good thing to do. I, I think, you know, I think in, in in politics, one of the challenges is that politicians who lie and consistently are invited on, how do you have people who lie to come back and, and treat them like a guest who's respected? Precisely. Like, I, bizarre maneuver. I remember saying that on a, on Twitter about SportsCenter. I said, to, to give the parallel example, if the Lakers general manager always say, yeah, we won 193 to five. Uh, we went again and you know, they lost actually 81, 82 or whatever. You wouldn't bring them back. Or if you brought them back, you'd like, they're crazy. They love, by the way, we used to do that on CNN. I, I had people who were just full of shit. I just did not book them again. I think it's pretty interesting that we have this sense that like this person is a must book. They're not, you know, Trevor Noah was once talking about how in South Africa, you could never get any of these politicians on the air. He's like the whole journalist was just journalism was all about working around them to try to yeah. get the information because they weren't going to tell you. And like journalists can do that. You don't need to say, you know, Donald Trump says this or Peter Alexander, I think it was from NBC after the the uh, a testimony of a woman who's testifying under oath is like, well, you know, my sources are telling me that everything she's saying is just not true. Right. And, and, and that's going to carry the weight right of of undercutting her who's just testified. 
I, I don't, I, I think it's a really, um, it's a really bad way to, to, to do journalism. And that's kind of where we are when it comes to politics, certainly. Well, again, the problem, as you described it earlier, I used the horse race. I forget you used a similar, it's like, it's like a contest. They're winning because this happened. He's in trouble because this gas price isn't as opposed to just putting him out, putting out true things. Well, and also like even framing it as the things that matter, right? Who has the biggest zinger is very rarely an interesting takeaway from a debate. Right. Right. I mean, but everybody, somebody always gets a good line in and it becomes like the centerpiece. Ho ho. Did you see John McCain last night is da 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 giving here's what he said at the moment where, you know, uh, and, and it's just such a silly way to think about as opposed to, well, there's three policies and we decide to crunch the numbers and see who's absolutely making this up because there's no way they're going to be able to fund this thing they want to do you know, or even couldn't, couldn't happen. And I think because it's framed as a who, who got who, who got who best. Right. It's, it really does not do a service to listeners. Almost it, it, everything gets reduced to like a junior high bicker battle, right. Whether in person or on with social media now, right. I want to know. I remember, I remember it was, I think it was Maggie Haberman from the New York times, right. Did, um, Hope Hicks is having an existential crisis about testifying before Congress. And you're like, I think of every story that the New York Times has done on any other person, and I'll say person of color who's ever had to testify on anything ever, you know, do, do, do they get to have it framed as an existential crisis? I'm going to say no. Yeah. But no. it's, you know, it's when you give the benefit of the doubt and you play the whole thing as a game. It's really, it's, it's, it's really does a disservice. I want to know way, way, way back, because we've listed all these things you've done and are still doing in the Rosa Parks, which comes on Peacock October 19th. Um, what was your first job in the media? Oh, in media. Way back. Way back. My first job was... Um, you're just out of college or you're in college still? WBZ TV 1987. I was working in local news. Um, as a production assistant. Well, my first internship was with a Spanish language station, but I was working, um, answering phones. I had a staple remover thingy, my thing that removes sure. staples. I know what you're around the building, taking staples out of bulletin boards was part of my job. I am so old. They were still using mostly manual typewriters, some electric typewriters. Then you'd be on five-way copy paper. Uh, and yes, my job, yes, that. I, I came in at seven o'clock, four hours a night just graduated college and I'd pull apart the five-way copy paper, yep. the, the white one for the reader, the pink one for the producer, the green one for the director, the orange one for the anchor who's not reading it. And whatever the last color is, was the teleprompter, which we taped together, yep. Yep. physically taped. And there was a person at the Today Show, there and was they a had, person who set up and the teleprompter. And so if a story got changed, right, that dropping guy. such and such, like it was a disaster. They did scroll forward to the next story or somehow in a two minute commercial break. Yeah. Rip I mean, it out. There was a person who used to sit up there on the Today Show and they would literally, the story was killed out. They'd lift it out, take yeah. it out, tape and it then, back together. And then retape again and hope yep. it doesn't jam in the teleprompter. <laughs> so you're you're pulling apart script pages and staples. Then how do you how you get on TV? What take me through the next step? I was working with a medical reporter at WBZ TV. And that got me a job with the medical reporter at NBC News. That got me a spot in local uh, in San Francisco, NBC, which was a part-time gig, uh, but it was on air. 
and uh, and then that got me to doing more reporting and anchoring, uh, which then brought me to um, I did a show when MSNBC launched that got canceled uh, when Princess Diana died, mm-hmm. and MSNBC really started doing that rolling live coverage, and I left there to go back to NBC to start doing Weekend Today, went there to CNN for about ten years, and then started my own production company after that. She just kept kept going one kept job going. after another. Sometimes that's the only thing you could do. Kept keep but, going. But it is fun. Like, would you like to look back at some of your early? Oh my tapes, god! A three-minute story. I have on, occasionally, yes. I um, think that'd be a great show. People oh like god, you, no, others, no. show me your first couple. T- oh I did god. one on prostitution in Las Vegas for the PBS station. That was my first quote-unquote TV job as an intern. But they gave me fifty dollars per story. Right. So I, I you know, got paid for body parts. So if you were if you were interviewing the mayor, you had to go get sound with the mayor, right? Mr. Mayor, how do you feel about blah, blah, blah? So if your hand was in the shot, they'd have to pay you money. And if your voice was used, they'd have to pay you money. Oh, wow. So you'd always ask leading questions and you'd hold that you choke up on the mic as high as possible. So you're they earning possibly you could get 50 bucks extra in your paycheck from doing That's- that. That reminds me of a sales job I had between the job I was describing, the TV job in, in, in Seattle, where I finally got on the air after like three years of being a PA producer or whatever. And I would, in the sales job for MCI, I would sell stuff knowing they probably weren't going to use it, but it was an add-on to, you know, it's like when you buy a card, you right. want to buy the, the right, extra, right, right. except that you have to pay for this. They didn't, but you'd look technically like you're doing well when you kind of knew it was all silly. So right. you, but you were out there hustling like, Mr. Mayor, I have three follow-up questions. <laughs> Usually I got one. So make sure. And so you're saying the reason the prices are going up <laughs> is because there's no way to edit around that. Because of the increase in the price. Right, they jump in and they say something and you're like, yep, my quotes, my, my question's going to be in there. I see on your Twitter, at least, your love of horses. Yes. You're still... Outright, you, you just ride for pleasure. You run around do, the ring, yeah. you go trail riding. What kind of riding? A little bit of, of all of it. I, my daughter uh, competes a lot and I do a little tiny bit of competing. But yeah, I love it. I, you know what I love about it the most? You can't multitask. If you're riding, you're riding. When did you learn to ride a horse? I started when I was 13. I, one of my early jobs, I started mucking stalls to pay for my riding lessons. Oh. And uh, yeah, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I just loved horses always. And so it was really my dream one day to own a horse. I mean, I used to come up with schemes when I was a little kid, like how could I sneak a horse into my house? How, cause there a way to like do this without anybody finding out that I actually have a horse that I'm feeding in the backyard, which the answer is no, there is no way. It's a hundred percent true. They're very quick judges. Horses are of the writer's temperament. So like, all of us have been on the trail rides with our little three-year-old children, you know, and, and the, the horse is just walking, but the power underneath, you're like, oh my God, if this guy takes off, I'm in trouble. You you're know? done. Yeah. Well, that's why, but it, that's another piece of what I like about it. There's no winning, right? There's no version where it's like, and then I overpowered the horse and I made him jump, right? It's all about teamwork. You literally have to figure out how to get this animal to know that the two of you are working together to try to get something done, or it's going to be a disaster. And so I, I love that. I think that's kind of cool. Can you walk up to any stable, a horse you haven't met? Do you have that now, that command where you can let that horse know, hey, I'm cool. I know how to work with you. No, 
I mean, and you just don't like, I don't, I'm too old now. I've had a lot of knee surgeries. But I mean, I could you, are you a horse person enough to pull that off? I yeah, guess. I can definitely hop on a good horse. Like that's a yeah. sane horse. I mean, no one's ever going to put me on a horse. That's crazy, but sure. When you are trying <laughs> to buy a horse, that's all you do. You just pop on a hundred horses and see how you like them. And do they like you? You know, but you, you always make sure I've had some horses that I, I was trying to purchase and, and it was a mess, you know, I couldn't get them to go or they were very stubborn and they just didn't like me or they were kind of bolting and not, you know, so it gets a little scary. And then you'd find something that it's got to be a good match. My riding instructor always says, it's always about the match, you know, that it's not necessarily about the, the level of your ability. It's like, are you a good match? Does this horse like you? And do you like it? And do you trust each other? Then that can work. Is there anything in your experience currently with your horses that's helping you do what else you're doing? Is there something about that relationship that you can take? I know it's a little esoteric. No, but... it sounds like you're trying to me to say like, yes, I've learned patience, which I really haven't. I've, <laughs> I've learned not multitasking. Horses are great because- It's more like a, a break. It's peace. It is, a, but a mental break. Yeah, right? that's like what I mean. You can't be on your phone. You can't be on Twitter. You can't be on Instagram. You can't, you have to just do. And I love that. I actually think it's really gives your brain a real break. I definitely needed it. I think I've gotten mine through golf in the last couple yeah. of years. Um, just cause I, I literally, I text my wife usually at the turn and I try not to look at anything and this important work call I might take, you know, if there's right. something going on, otherwise I don't look at Twitter for four to five hours. Nice. And I don't know how the people who were really in, I mean, you're one of them, I guess, cause you've been doing it, but the day-to-day -day workers that just got overwhelmed by the pollution of all the stories and all the insanity over the last six years, I, as just a consumer, because I was just covering sports, I could, I'm not watching, tonight. I just can't for my own soul. I, mean, I need I think, to. I think everybody does that, right? I think everybody has their level of like, yep, nope, <laughs> not this one, not looking at that. I mean, I really found the George Floyd video really hard to watch. And then now when someone says, you know, here's a horrible picture of a horrible thing, you know, I have to think long and hard of, do I actually want to take that in? I don't know. It's a, I'm always very divided about that because I do think those things are important to share. They're really important, but it's hard. It's hard to pass that along. You know, I, I remember going to a march with my daughter and at the beginning, they had some speakers. This is after George Floyd. And they had us kneel down for the time that that officer had done what he did. Mm, a long time. I, didn't, I didn't even know if we had the right time. I think I think later than they recalculate, it was actually long. I forget. But anyways, a long time. I got a ruined ankle, shaky knees. And it, it hit me that how soft am I? I can't even, I mean, I stayed in it, but my mind is saying, man, that hurts. You need to, right? We were suffering nothing compared to what he suffered. Right. It was like a wake up, like everybody needs to give a little more. For that, that example showing that was our limit, but you know, there's right. other people doing a hell of a lot more. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it has been crazy. So I do, I think a lot of people just opt out. And that's probably why we are where we are, because for a lot of people, and where those, you know, Supreme Court breaks through in some ways, you know, on big moves, but other things just don't break through because people can't take it. They just cannot take any more information, just bombarding them day in and day out. And so entertainment news is a little bit easier to take, um, you know, movies, um, sports. yeah, sports, you know, versus like, here's how you have to understand this thing that's happened politically. I think it's just a lot often. What's besides horses, what's one of the escape that you do either because you need it for everything or just you love it? Well, partly with horses, I always go down south for the winter. So we'll leave in November and go down to Florida for the winter. And um, 
And so I've just started, which is weird to think about ice skating in Florida, but I've just started ice skating because a similar thing. I'm not very good. So I really feel like I have to completely focus so that I don't break something. <laughs> have you found yourself talking to strangers more than you once did besides a, like, like getting deep with strangers? I have. No, I hate it. No. Mm. Oh, I've had some amazing conversations. No, mm -mm. nope, 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 nope. I was taught, you know what I realized? I was in Houston this weekend and uh, both my Uber drivers were extremely ch chatty and I was completely over it. It was too much, too much, too much. No, I don't want to know. <laughs> you, really you're don't. doing, you're doing enough and you want your break. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> I, I've just found a sense of community by fig finding out that there were other people, whatever their color, that we could hold a cool conversation and, and, you know, I guess I haven't done it with the opposing viewpoint very much. We've had a few and it quickly ended like, all right, I guess we're not on the same team as opposed to uh, shouting at someone at an airport. You know? Oh, yeah. No, I don't think that's a good thing shouting at airports. But I do think I learned that one of my Uber drivers doesn't like politicians at all and thinks just people in the neighborhood should be running things. I thought that was problematic. You know, so her whole thing was, I'm not going to vote because voting's a waste of time. And I was like, okay, well, you could see where there could be flaws in that. But, you know, listen, sister, do you? Yeah. Uh, and um, and then I, I get frequently that New York is on fire and that it's um, you know, murders happening day in and day out on the subway and on the street. And I'm like, so I'm actually from there and actually was yeah. there earlier today. Would you like me to tell you, live in Harlem, would you like me to tell you a little bit about New York City? No, not really. Yeah. Oh, I have the same issue come on, with... Just like, come on. I have the same issue with Seattle. Mm, People yeah. hear that. Oh, I was just there again. Yes. Are there problems? Is there homelessness? Of course. But the homelessness is not because a whole bunch of bad people. It's because the housing is so insane. You could have somebody, like you said, you got your guy in San Diego, lives in Mexico now. I guess if there were right-wing media in Mexico, they could say there's a caravan of white people coming yeah. south. You know, they could play that up. <laughs> exactly. All right. Tell me one more thing in closing, why you're proud of the Rosa Parks documentary on Peacock. Um, you know what I'm, I'm most proud of? Uh, we fought very hard to not get Rosa Parks put on during Black History Month, which probably would have given it even more promotions and this and that. But Part of the whole point of Rosa Parks' story is that it's not like, let's take a look this Black History Month at a woman you know well, Rosa Parks. Like, Rosa Parks was a badass, and she was a badass for any season. And I think I was, you know, it required some conversations about, like, we think her story is worthy of being told, you know, not in Black History Month, outside of Black History Month. Because in a way, I think what she fought for her whole life was that you know, not to be relegated to a certain narrative, a certain story, a certain way it's told, a certain understanding. Um, so yeah, we're very excited that it's airing at all, getting things across the finish line when you run a production company is hard and it takes a lot of work. And uh, I think this one is really, really good. I'm sure people will be watching and I hope there's a whole bunch of people who want to keep learning from you. Appreciate your time on this. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, Maine is a production of me, Kenny Maine, and Odyssey. Our senior producer is Paul Aspen. Our executive producer is Jody Avergan. And our executive producer for Odyssey is Lena Glazer. If you like our show, please rate us, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe. 